0: Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Please rate and review the Katie Helper Show on iTunes. And uh, of course, support the show at Patreon. Patreon Patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's Patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And speaking of Patreon and Patreon only, you know... I released a really good episode this week that everyone should check out with Faiza Shaheen who ran as a labor candidate and lost, but did significant damage to her Tory opponent. And also is just a very inspiring person and very vulnerable and open in our interview about what the loss, uh, labor's loss means and also what can be done moving forward. So I really recommend that. But why do I bring that up? I bring that up because right now you're about to hear an extra episode, but, you know, I can't make it Patreon only because it's about the situation in Iran, and that's too important, and I don't really want to profit off of uh, war and peace issues, so this is just a free bonus episode, and I don't even want to say bonus because bonus makes it sound like it's not that important. It's an additional to my usual output episode that I'm offering for free because I can't be a war profiteer. Unlike everyone who you see on uh, Fox News, although you, who am I kidding? You guys don't watch Fox News, but unlike everyone on Fox News and even some people on MSNBC, I'm not going to be a war profiteer. So what I'm doing is I'm releasing an interview with an extremely learned guest, Juan Cole. And then, stand by, because I'm releasing even more episodes on this issue, because, again, the whole Iran thing is pretty important. So, you're going to hear an interview that I did with Trita Parsi, who is the co-founder and executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, And uh, he's also the founder and former president of the National Iranian American Council. And I also speak to Ali Gharib, who is an Iranian-American journalist at The Intercept. So I get all these different um, perspectives on what's happening now in Iran. And I really recommend this stuff because it's pretty important. And I'm going to be getting even more on this. Uh, Also, stand by for Patreon-only episodes and bonuses, so you're going to have... Uh, you're going to hear from Megan Day from Jacobin. She's going to read her uh, I'm gay and want Medicare for all piece. I also really, really, really recommend this week's Patreon-only episode, which I released with Faiza Shaheen. So, of course, I gave you a full interview with Faiza Shaheen. I have a really good bonus Patreon-only episode with Faiza Shaheen where she answers questions from listeners and people on Twitter, and really great questions actually about the British elections and what's next. Uh, she also r- shares with us an op-ed that she wrote about her opponent who was recently knighted by the queen, which is pretty disgusting. Uh, I mean the knighting, not her her piece. Um, and I also bring you some um, audio of the people who are, were supporting her and stumped for her, and that includes, wait for it, Hugh Grant, and Eddie Izzard. Other stuff is coming down the pike. Uh, some of my discussion with Ali and Trita will be Patreon only. Um, but again, it would be great if you just supported the show, not just for the bonus content, which of course is great if I do say so myself, but just to support the show for, you know, releasing extra episodes on Iran. Uh, yeah. Okay. So without any further ado... Here is Juan Cole. Juan Cole is the founder and chief editor of Informed Comment. He is Richard P. Mitchell Professor of History at the University of Michigan and an adjunct professor at Gulf Study Center, Qatar University. He's the author of, among many other books, Muhammad, Prophet of Peace, and the Clash of Empires. You can follow him online at J-R-I-C-O-L-E. And make sure you check out his recent pieces at Informed Comment, which is the website that he edits. And that is at JuanCole.com. So thank you so much, Juan Cole, for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Katie. And you are really an expert in, in this field, in the field of um, the Middle East. So I wanted to talk to you, of course, uh, about what's happening right now in Iran. And also you have a piece that you wrote which people can find at your website, Informed Comment, called Trump has conducted a war on Iran for 19 months. Iran finally hit back. So can you tell us about that piece?
1: Yes. Well, Trump is the one who created this entire crisis from A to Z. Uh, Iran uh, signed uh, a, a treaty with the United Nations Security Council, including the United States, in 2015, agreeing to mothball 80 percent of its Nuclear uh, enrichment program, which was a civilian nuclear enrichment program to make fuel for its uh, nuclear reactors that provide electricity and are located in uh, Boucher. Uh, So, but it it gave up its enrichment uh, activities to a large extent and agreed to international uh, United Nations uh, regular inspections. And you know, uh, no country under active ins- inspection has ever developed a nuclear weapon. Uh, it's because, I mean, if you make plut- plutonium, uh, the, the instruments can tell. Uh, and there's no way, you know, you can't run a vacuum cleaner and, and clean it up afterwards. Right. This, this signature is there. Uh, so um, uh, things seemed well in hand uh, for the foreseeable future uh, with, re- with regard to Iran's nuclear capabilities. Uh, they, they haven't had a weapons program since 2003, uh, but there was always a, a worry that they would get more and more sophisticated on the civilian side and at some point might, might go uh, military. Uh, but the, the deal forestalled that uh, development. And there was a prospect of Iran rejoining the international community uh, in return for Iran's uh, dismantling of its program, the United Nations uh, Security Council guaranteed Iran uh, the lifting of all economic sanctions on its economy, which had crippled it. Uh, Trump in May of 2018 breached the agreement. People say he pulled out of it. He, if you sign a treaty, you don't pull out of the treaty, you break it. Right. Uh, so he broke that treaty. And uh, despite the fact that the UN kept saying that Iran was in complete um, adherence to all of the provisions. And Trump uh, then slapped the most severe sanctions on Iran that have ever been applied to any country in peacetime. Not just sanctions, really, uh, it's, it's beyond sanctions. He put a, a blockade on the Iranian economy. He prevented them from exporting their petroleum. And he did all this without any warrant of law. That is to say there's no UN Security Council resolution. Uh, There's no act of Congress. It's just Trump. It's one person. And uh, Iran's uh, petroleum exports uh, fell from two and a half million barrels a day, uh, which was one of the higher uh, uh, export totals uh, in the world, uh, to uh, 500,000 a day. Uh, the petroleum provides seventy percent of the Iranian uh, income, so uh, Trump has just strangled the Iranian economy. It's uh, it's like putting a pillow over a baby in its crib. Mm.
0: Were you surprised by this, by the way? Was this I something was, you were expecting,
1: uh, or I was surprised uh, uh, on both accounts. I was surprised that uh, uh, Trump ordered the assassination of General Soleimani. Assassination, by the way, is illegal in U.S. law since the Gerald Ford uh, presidency.
0: Mm, right. Uh, Not that it stops and, us, really. Doesn't seem to. Well. Um, <clears throat> sadly, yeah.
1: There's there's assassinations and assassinations. This was uh, this was done on third party soil in mm-hmm. Iraq. Right. Uh, and, um, and it was a high government uh, official of Iran. It wasn't right. some uh, seedy terrorist. Sure. Uh, but and, I mean, um, I,
0: yeah. So it's, it's, I mean, it's egregious even within the egregious
1: assassination category. Yes, uh, I would say so. It, I mean, in fact, it's unprecedented. I, 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 yeah. I've been observing U.S. foreign policy all my life. I've never seen anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I was also surprised that the Iranians uh, replied in the way that they did, uh, although they uh, very carefully avoided uh, causing U.S. troop casualties and, and they had uh, a pretty good control over those uh, rockets that they sent off. Uh, so that was deliberate on their parts to avoid casualties. Uh, although they avoid the casualties, they, they struck openly at U.S. Uh, military facilities uh, and from Iranian soil. That also surprised me. That's not the way the Iranians have usually operated.
0: How, uh, what, so what do you mean by that? How have they usually operated?
1: Well, in response to the, the maximum pressure, the uh, the economic blockade that Trump has slapped on them, uh, they have acted out. Uh, they've pushed back against it. Uh, the, the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia are two U.S. allies that have joined in uh, strangling Iran. So there have been attacks on UAE tankers and... Uh, the uh, Saudi refining facility at Abqaiq was hit, but these attacks, which Iran was somehow almost certainly behind, were done in a way that they had no f- clear Iranian footprint. Hmm. You, you couldn't you couldn't prove that Iran had done them. Right. Uh, and uh, indeed, the there's some thinking that uh, some of the destruction in Saudi Arabia must have come from local Shiite groups, maybe uh, allied with Iran. So uh, okay. the Iranians haven't, haven't usually just struck out openly from their territory.
0: And why is Trump doing this? Why did he do this? What's the role of Pompeo? What's the role of the trolling and, and the oil? In fact, you have a piece called Trump Troll in chief wags the impeachment dog by going to war with Iran, which is a great piece. Um, so how, yeah, how much of this is related to uh, being a distraction from impeachment? And of course, as I think I believe Michael Moore pointed this out on Twitter, of course, he's not the first uh, president to use Uh, the international stage as a distraction from impeachment. And we saw that with Bill Clinton also.
1: That's right. Uh, Yeah, well, I I think several things came together for this missile strike on uh, or this uh, drone strike on Soleimani and his colleagues. Um, One was that uh, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, is an Iran war hawk. And uh, there's some reporting that he began plotting for this outcome several months ago. Uh, And so there are people around Trump who wanted this. And uh, I don't think Trump necessarily wanted it. Uh, He, um, uh, you know, for all of his bluster, typically has uh, not done things that would cause potentially a full-out war Ah, uh, you know, he would drop a huge bomb on Afghanistan, but then that would be it, or he'd right. bomb bomb Syria and then back off. But um, this could have, you know, it doesn't seem like it will at the moment, but it 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 could have very easily spiraled out into a war. Uh, so I, I think Pompeo was one of those who uh, gave Trump this option, and I uh, my guess is that it worked for Trump in a number of ways. One was, of course, it did take the spotlight off of the impeachment. And we know that Trump is, uh, you know, um, Dave Chappelle said that we elected an internet troll as our president. Right. Uh, that that whenever uh, the news is negative for Trump, he, uh, he trolls us by uh, tweeting out some outrageous thing or, you know, shifting the focus and then he gets He's very good at getting those panels on the cable news networks, which have replaced the news, uh, to just chatter on about his latest tweet. Uh, So he he actually can manipulate what what Americans are talking about in this way. So I think that's part of what was going on, is he he wanted to get the impeachment off of the front pages. But also, uh, he um, and um, Esper had ordered these airstrikes, Uh, now it's easy to forget, Uh, the previous Sunday, on uh, basis of the Iraqi Shiite militia, Qatab Hezbollah, in response to which uh, on uh, Wednesday after the strikes, that militia invaded the premises of the U.S. embassy in the green zone in in Baghdad. And uh, Trump and uh, Pompeo and, and others in the Republican Party kind of made their bread and butter by attacking Hillary Clinton over the Benghazi uh, uh, attack on the U.S. consulate in 2011. So I think Trump had this horror that he'd be uh, laughed at and and looked upon as a Hillary Clinton uh, with this uh, embassy uh, invasion, uh, for which the U.S. was clearly not, not prepared. It boggles my mind. That, that Pompeo and Esper and Trump could sit down and say, well, let's bomb Iraqi militias in Iraq uh, and not do anything extra for U.S. embassy protection. Right. I mean, isn't it, isn't it just foreseeable that this would happen? So I think by, by killing Soleimani, uh, he, he uh, avoided uh, being reduced to a Hillary Clinton or a Jimmy Carter uh, and uh, tried to look macho. Right. So, for, for Trump, I think it was very personal. Right. And it had to do with his impeachment, had to do with his positioning uh, himself for uh, his base as a macho figure. For people like Pompeo and maybe Esper, uh, I, I think it was more strategic in, in presenting Trump with this possibility.
0: Right, and in fact, there was a lot of um in terms of the personal di- di- um, dimension of this, I didn't realize this until I saw uh, Amy Goodman, an interview on democracy now with a professor I have to look up who she is um but she was great and uh, I'm embarrassed I can't remember her name, but she was talking about all the kind of the meme war that was fought um the war of memes online between um soleimani and trump uh which I thought was kind of interesting, and of course, uh, it, I think Trump kind of met a troll, his tro- his his troll equal uh, online, which uh, I think may have maybe offers a slight window into into how much it's it's based on personal uh, conflict.
1: Yes, I think uh, with with this man, who you know, I'm not a psychiatrist, right. I couldn't Knows him, but there's obviously. From my layman's point of view, something very wrong with him. Right. Yeah. I, th- I think most of the things that he does are about him.
0: Yeah. Right. And in this case, it really has a uh, an impact. Um, yeah. I mean, I think there's been kind of an over. You, you know, we see every day there's a new article about his brain, his psychology, his, uh, his psychiat- psychiatric, alleged psychiatric disorder. But I think this is. And I think sometimes that people miss like the structural context or the historic context and how what Trump is doing fits into that. But this is a case that does seem to me, as you said, something really about him. Um, also, I just want to make sure that people know, listeners know, of course, people know that um, Pompeo is the U.S. Secretary of State. And uh, most listeners know, I think, that um, Esper, who you referred to, that's Mark Esper, who is Defense Secretary. Um, just want to make sure all listeners know uh the cast of characters. Can you talk about Soleimani? Because I feel like there's not a lot of, um, in the United States, people don't really have a clear sense of who he is and how he's viewed in Iran. Um, Can you talk about him as a figure?
1: Yeah, Soleimani stood out uh, for being particularly popular in Iran, according to opinion polling uh, that was done by the University of Maryland. uh, And uh, some 82% of Iranians had a highly favorable or favorable view of him uh, last fall. Uh, They also felt that his activities, uh, he's the head of the uh, special forces of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps, uh, the uh, Jerusalem Brigade or the Quds Brigade, uh, and has been active in uh, supporting militias in Lebanon uh, with Hezbollah in Syria uh, and in Iraq. Uh, He's kind of parlayed the Hezbollah model out into these countries, among uh, uh, Shiite populations in particular, and uh, projected uh, Iranian soft power uh, and a bit of of hard power as well. Um, He uh, came to prominence initially fighting in the Iran-Iraq War of the 1980s, which was an eight-year horrible war, World War I style with trenches, and in which the United States swung around to support Saddam Hussein and the uh, Iraqi Baath Party uh, against Iran, and the Iraqis had invaded Iran uh, quite quite illegally. Uh, so it, Soleimani cut his teeth fighting Iraq and and uh, and the U.S. Uh, backing for Iraq, uh, and I think formed a poor uh, image of the U.S. because of all that, and. Um, then he uh, he developed this uh, special forces of the uh, Revolutionary Guards Corps, which is the Guards Corps is really kind of the Iranian National Guard. It's it's distinct from the conventional Iranian Army. Uh, and after Bush, uh, George W. Bush uh, invaded Iraq in, in t- two thousand three, and and inadvertently, I think, brought the Iraqi Shiites to power, and those Shiites had been. Um, close to Soleimani, uh, the, the Islamic Supreme Council of Iraq as a major party, had a paramilitary called the Butter Corps that used to fight uh, Saddam. Uh, and uh, the Butter Corps is really, you know, just a brigade of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps filled by Iraqi expatriates. They probably got their money from Iran. They certainly got their training and material from Iran, their weaponry. So um, and, and, and that group, the Islamic Supreme Council of Iraq and the Butter Corps, they were allied de facto with the United States in the Bush era uh, because they had been anti-Saddam and they were happy that the United States got rid of Saddam. And, and, and Paul Bremer, who was the Bush Viceroy in Iraq uh, initially, actually appointed uh, the, the head of the Islamic Supreme Council to his interim governing council. So there were moments that that the United States and Soleimani were hand in glove. They were actual allies, de facto. And this occurred again after 2014 when uh, ISIL or ISIS arose. Uh, The the initial response to that terrorist group in northern Iraq came from Soleimani and uh, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps and then those Iraqi Shiite militias that he helped to form uh, and back. And uh, they planned out uh, an attack on uh, ISIL in Tikrit, north of Baghdad, uh, which was Saddam Hussein's um, birthplace uh, and got bogged down. Uh, And uh, the the Obama administration initially didn't approve of this entire thing. They wanted the US to be the lead force, uh, not Iran. Uh, but when they got blo- when the Iraqis got bogged down uh, and the Iranians uh, in the uh, Tikrit campaign, uh, the U.S. decided that it would it would look bad for PR purposes uh, not to have this victory against ISIL once the campaign had begun. And they gave close air support to Soleimani. Uh, so um, this uh, rhetoric you hear nowadays that oh he's a bad guy he's the worst guy in the world he's killed millions. Yeah, I mean, first of all, he hasn't killed millions. I don't know wh- why they say that or where exactly those millions were, but um, right. yeah. uh yeah, but he, he was—he was a military—he uh, uh, was a military commander. And sometimes he was on the opposite side from the United States. Sometimes he was on the same side. But his major uh, his major activities in recent times have been fighting Al Qaeda-linked groups in Syria uh, or fighting ISIL in Iraq. Uh, you would think that that would uh, uh, make him a, a kind of ally of the U.S. Right.
0: The, the media, of course, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but the media is not at all questioning that framing and narrative about Soleimani. In fact, I believe it was CNBC that tweeted that um, the U.S. had killed world's biggest bad guy.
1: Yeah, Um yeah. I, I don't know what's wrong with American journalists uh, that you know Edward R. Murrow or Walter Cronkite would never have talked like that. Maybe. Right. And and I, I think even Tom Tom Brokaw, you know, is is really upset about where journalism, television journalism, has gone. Uh, calling somebody a bad guy is is not journalism.
0: Yeah, it's it's really embarrassing. Um, yeah, as. Um, uh, Nando Villa uh, quoted uh, our media is run by literal children. And by the way, thank you for, I didn't know this until you told me this during an interview that we did last year, which was that um, Pompeo is himself uh, an av- evangelical. Uh, I, my my uh, Italian, Italophobia, or not, phobia, Italo, in my Italo ignorance, I just assumed he was ca- Roman Catholic. And you then set me straight about not just Pompeo, but a whole history of, um, uh, evangelical Italian-Americans, which I didn't know about. Um, so how much is this informed by that view, um, a religious view of the world versus a material view?
1: Well, I, I, I think for Pompeo, the uh, the hard right evangelical um, framing is extremely important to understand what he's about. I mean, he gave a speech in which he said he thought the rapture was uh, imminent.
0: Wow, yeah, that's very I mean,
1: scary. And I mean, do you think I mean, he that,
0: believes that or is that pandering?
1: Uh, I don't know. How uh, would I know? I can't, right. be, you inside can't be inside. Mine, yeah. It, but, but Either way. It's I mean, scary. He, he's, he's the equivalent of, of that guy in the New Yorker cartoons that holds up the sign with the long beard saying the end is near. Right. Uh, it's very scary to have him as secretary of state.
0: Yeah. Um, and what do you think can be done now moving forward?
1: Well, I, I mean, practically speaking, getting this maniac out of the White House is the biggest thing that needs to be done. Uh, if if if, if your listeners are not actively uh, uh, canvassing for somebody else to be president, then, then they're implicated in all of these disasters. Uh, uh, Trump is just erratic and uh, he wakes up in the morning and just does the craziest things. And the, the, this you know, is, is the real world. Uh, the, the consequences of all this could be dire. For one thing, it seems to me very likely uh, that Trump's behavior has ensured the uh, departure in a fairly swift time frame of U.S. troops from Iraq. Uh, the Iraqi parliament met uh, uh, and, and, and voted uh, that the U.S. troops should, should leave. Uh, the, the U.S. Uh, political class and the journalists say it's an advisory vote. It's not an advisory vote. It was a vote of parliament, uh, and uh, it it charged the executive with making the arrangements for the troops to leave. Uh, but it, it was it was uh, it was a vote of parliament. It was decisive. and and the the resolution was presented to the Parliament by the executive, by by uh, uh, Adel Mahdi, the Prime Minister. and he wanted this uh, and got it. So uh, actually, Sencom sent over a letter to uh, Abdul Mahdi letting him know that th- there would be troop movements that th- they were going to try to thin out the US military presence in Baghdad itself because in Baghdad they're near to those Shiite militias whose leader they killed and they're they're afraid there'll be attacks on US troops uh, so they sent they're sending several hundred out to Kuwait uh, just out of Iraq and they're s- distributing others to bases that are uh, further away from the Shiites, I think, uh, maybe out to uh, Ain al-Assad in in Al-Anbar, or up to the the base in Kurdistan. So, um, uh, And and as part of that letter, uh, the the CINCOM said that this is in preparation for the U.S. troops getting out of Iraq altogether in accordance with the Iraqi parliament vote. Uh, uh, Secretary of Defense uh, Mark Esper has attempted to downplay this letter. He said it wasn't signed. Uh, it was from the U.S. And, and actually, there's a, an Arabic version of it over uh, that both sides had to agree with. And, and Abdul Natti's office and the U.S. military went back and forth on it. So it was quite deliberate, this letter. And it's also correct. The U.S. military, I think, will have to leave Iraq if the uh, Iraqi government doesn't want them there because they have no le- legal framework to operate in somebody else's country. And the uh, the U.S. troops, you know, if, if there were a firefight and somebody was killed, they could be charged with murder in Iraqi civil courts.
0: Right. So there's something tweet uh, trending on Twitter right now. It's uh, I voted for Hillary Clinton. It's a reference to what is happening now in Iran. But but there is some pushback to that um, uh, framing, and that some a lot of people are pointing that out. That Hillary herself had said a lot of hawkish things about Iran. Um, I, this is a counterfactual, obviously, because she's not president. But what do you think of that comparison? What do you think well, Hillary would have been like in in this
1: role? Hillary uh, is relatively speaking an Iran hawk, uh, but uh, she did pledge to uh, observe the uh, 2015 Iran nuclear deal. Right. Uh, so you know, if we play this out in our minds and assuming that she did follow through on her pledge, uh, then Iran's buying Boeing airplanes. It's, it's, uh, it's getting reintegrated into the world economy. It's, it's pumping oil and selling it all around the world. Uh, when you get integrated into the world economy in that way, uh, and then there's no sanctions on it, uh, it it's mothballed, it's, it's nuclear program, it's not a pariah. Uh, then it it will develop friends and relationships and be open to international pressure. Uh, and so I think this entire crisis doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think on the Iran issue, uh, that uh, trend on on Twitter is correct. That okay, Those yep. people who said we we should vote for Trump because he won't get us into a war with Iran, whereas Hillary will uh, were' we're wrong. We're wrong, right. Uh, Now, on other issues, I think uh, it's very possible that Hillary would have uh, sent a big U.S. military force into Syria. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, She's uh, really, really pro-Israeli in her current uh, incarnation. Uh, and I, I say that because back in the 90s she said the Palestinians should have rights right She'd call it an she occupation. Any, right. You know, she hasn't said anything like that for 20 years. right. Uh, so I, I think uh, the indications were that uh, that she uh, may, might well have gotten us into a war in Syria, but, but not Iran.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. So you, so you're saying while she's in, in many in other areas, she's perhaps more hawkish than Trump, this is the, a country where that's not true. That wouldn't have been true. On... I,
1: I, I think that's what, based on what she said, sure. uh, uh, her announced policies. And I think, you know, she was part of the Obama administration and uh, she supported that nuclear deal. I just uh, think that the nuclear deal was uh, would have forestalled uh, these kinds of military tensions with Iran.
0: Right. Um, and how unprecedented is this moment, historically speaking? Um, I mean, how do you both as I like, I guess, as a person who has just lived through history and witnessed history and also as a as a scholar?
1: Well, it's not unprecedented for the United States to be at war with countries. Uh, and uh, so uh, there's nothing that unusual about it. What's what's strange is this targeting of a state official. Uh, so the United States never killed a Soviet general, for instance. Uh, they thought about it, I have to tell you, but they never did it. Right. And one of the reasons you don't do that is because you want your generals targeted. Right. Uh, so uh, I, I think that, Trump crossed a line here with regard to normal, uh, normal war practice, uh, and it's, it's just unclear where that will go. And I think if Iran does succeed in uh, moving U.S. troops out of Iraq, because by the way, you know, if if the U.S. troops leave Iraq, the, the the several hundred U.S. troops that are in 10th down there in southeast Syria, in the middle of nowhere which were intended to block Iranian equipment supplies to Hezbollah, uh, those troops w- would be extremely exposed. You never want to put U.S. troops on the ground in a place where they can't easily be rescued by helicopter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you want a helicopter base somewhere nearby. And at the moment, you know, that helicopter base is in Iraq, uh, but if the U.S. were to leave Iraq, then how would, how would those troops in Syria be rescued if they got into trouble? Uh, you could maybe do it from Turkey, but it's a stretch. Uh, so I think they have to leave too. Uh, so, uh, I mean, Trump won't be crying any tears about this because he said he wanted to get out of the Middle East, but uh, the US uh, military presence in the, in the Fertile Crescent may be over with as a re- direct result of Trump's actions. Uh, And much sooner and in a way that he didn't uh, anticipate. And would that be good? Well, um, to the extent that those troops in Iraq are training the Iraqi army and helping uh, in various ways uh, with um, uh, mopping up the remnants of ISIL, uh, and the U.S. troops in Syria still do have that role of uh, of keeping an eye, on, to make sure that ISIL doesn't resurge as well. I think there is a danger here mm-hmm. of an ISIL resurgence. I mean, it's it's a horrible right. group. I will I will break journalistic standards sure. and, and and talk about them dirty. Uh, but they, um, uh, uh, okay. they yeah they behead people, yeah. uh, 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 enslave women and, right. and so forth. But um. Uh, I uh, th- they could come back. Uh, they haven't. They haven't disappeared, and they still do probably hold some small bits of territory in northern Iraq. Uh, so, uh, to the extent that the U.S. gets out and and, and the Iraqi army is not good at fighting them, and and the Syrian uh, army is a mess, uh, th- that could be a danger. And you know those guys blew up Paris, so they're. Sure having them resurge would not be pleasant. Yeah. yeah.
0: Also, I mean, it's funny because the combination of that plus um, taking out this major anti-ISIS uh, general is uh, pretty interesting. And what do you think, what can be done besides just, besides uh, advocating for another, you know, working to defeat Trump? And of course, I'm, as as you probably know, and listeners definitely know for me, that that person is, is Bernie Sanders. Um, and he's also been, I think, the best on this issue, kind of unequivocally- um, along with Tulsi Gabbard uh, on this issue, unequivocally condemning this as and calling it an assassination and not kind of waffling over it. Um, what can be done though now while Trump still is president?
1: Well, uh, I, I think it's uh, it's good for people to rally. Yeah. Uh, I think yeah. anti-war rallies and sort of uh, letting the press know about them, uh, getting them on television, uh, sort of letting, Trump no, because he's regardless of what he says, he's really really tied in to the public mood. Yeah, Uh, letting him know that what he's done is extremely unpopular, especially the possibility of it spiraling, uh, is all to the good. Uh, Right, he's very narcissistic, and so, so having large numbers of people in the streets criticizing him. Uh, again, he will deny this, but it, it certainly would hurt his feelings. And uh, w- we want him to know that we don't like this.
0: Right. Also, I mean, I think that it he should be, you know, this is something he really did campaign against, right, or campaign around his alleged um, anti-interventionism and anti, you know, he posed military adventurism. Um, so I think if there's a way for people who, I mean, I, I, maybe this is wishful thinking, but people who usually support him, maybe, you know, We his his usual critics, maybe we can reach out to them and remind them that, you know, part of one of the things he promised um, was not uh, getting involved uh, internationally, because this is one of the things that I really think, um, unlike other things, which people don't care about. I mean, no one no one who supports Trump cares about the Russia stuff. Um, no one cares about his, how he breaks with the presidential decorum. In fact, I think people like that about him, people who support him, but I'm hoping that maybe this is something his regular supporters will, will rally against.
1: I really think you've put your finger on it, Katie. Uh, the, um, you know, about 14% of the white working class that had voted for Obama defected to Trump. Right. Uh, this statistic is, um, smaller than, people think. Uh, But uh, I mean, most of Trump's voters were fairly well off. Right. Uh, Yeah. uh, But um, but there was that defection. And it was, you know, it was unemployed uh, steel and auto workers here in Michigan uh, who were attracted by Trump's promises to bring the jobs back and to uh, put tariffs on China and that kind of thing. Uh, But again, they very much don't want more U.S. blood and treasures expended in the Middle East for, for no good reason. And I, th- I think th- this kind of thing could hurt Trump a- among them. And certainly we should reach out to them and, and get them back.
0: Right. Yeah. And of course, yeah. And if the media focused on that aspect of it, as opposed to kind of just the formality and decorum of it, that would probably be helpful. Um, and any other predictions that you have or um, do you, are we on the brink of some kind of existential moment
1: no, it, it 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 seems as though both Trump and Iran agree that this is not a good time for them to go to all-out war. Yeah. Uh, so uh, this is an episode in, in a, a long-term shadow struggle uh, between the United States and Iran. Um, I think uh, you know, looking out as a historian, uh, now I'm I'm uh, getting into my late sixties, so uh, I, I think in the long term. I really think that petroleum is over with mm. within 10 to 15 years. Uh, I, th- I think a lot of countries will just outlaw it. Uh, and, uh, uh you see what uh, how all of Australia is on fire. Oh,
0: yeah. It's so often.
1: And, and, you know, this is only the beginning. We're at early stages of this stuff. Uh, so burning petroleum is very bad for human beings and other living things. Uh, and, uh, for the earth. So, um, I think there's there's going to be a whole new fleet of electric cars coming out uh, in uh, in September, uh, and uh, Volkswagen is going big into it. Uh, I think uh, they're coming down in price dramatically. Uh, renewable mm-hmm. uh, energy is becoming cheaper and cheaper. You you can now just make a solar farm or a uh, a wind farm uh, and run it uh, more cheaply than continuing to run a coal plant. Uh, so uh, uh, you know, it's not very long from now uh, The people will all be driving electric vehicles and and, and getting their energy from the sun and wind, uh, and uh, and petroleum will become worthless. Uh, well, you still can use it for fertilizer. It, it, it won't become completely worthless, but it certainly won't won't cost you know uh, uh, sixty five dollars a barrel. Right. Uh, and and so. The U.S. interest in the Middle East is mainly that. Uh, I think the, the, Navy, the, the Navy Fifth Fleet is headquartered at Bahrain in the Gulf for this reason. Uh, and so I think you know, Middle Eastern wars are, are, are a limited phenomenon. If we could just get through the next 10 years, uh, that whole region will you know, be as interesting to U.S. geopolitics as Uruguay or Senegal are right now, which is not, not interesting. Uh, and, and the focus, I think, will move on to the Pacific Rim. Um, so, um, uh, you know, what I say is, you know, are you against Middle East war? Then buy an electric car, put uh, solar, panels, uh, solar panels on your roof if you have a roof. Uh, uh, pressure your local city council to, to, to declare a climate emergency and uh, go to renewables. Uh, it, it, this, the two things are connected. The, the climate activism... And anti-war activism with regard to the Middle East are intimately connected in ways I think that are are not underlined enough.
0: Yeah. And anything else you want to say before you go? Because I know you have to go to. Uh, yeah, to I have to, to teach.
1: Go. What are you talking about today in class? Uh, I am teaching a course for the first time on the history of happiness. Whoa! Wow! How'd
0: you get yeah. that? How'd you get?
1: uh well, I I invented your department the flag- to.
0: No, the, well, you part- are a very established. Uh, no, the
1: calling. department was, I gave them, I wanted to do it, of course, and I gave them some possibilities, and I mentioned this one. And the department was very enthusiastic wow. that I should do it. That's we have a, a, a crisis of um, uh, depression amongst yeah. the undergraduates in higher education across the board. They're a third more depressed, according to the scales, than they were even five years ago. Mm-hmm uh and uh there's a, a, an uptick into suicide yeah it's, it's awful. awful yeah so I, I think the higher ups in the administration when they heard i wanted to do this were very happy about it uh, i mean i can't promise to make the students happy right. but I, can, I can tell them you know what plato and uh, the sufis and the buddhists all said about wow how
0: that's really interesting wow so it's called the history of happiness
1: yes wow if you Google Juan Cole and History of Happiness, uh, the syllabus comes right up.
0: Wow, so. that's so interesting. Now I'm gonna have to have you on again to talk about that. <laughs>
1: Anytime, Katie. I, I'm a I'm a fanboy, so. Oh well, uh, thank you. I'm uh, a fangirl. Uh, girl, you, so worked out you, well. You,
0: you <laughs> um, well, thank you again so much for um, coming on. And uh, just so listeners know, it was so I realized I really needed to do an episode on this, and I was like, uh, I'll just ask Juan Cole. I mean, he's so busy. I'm sure he won't be able to do it. But lo and behold.
1: It was a miracle. I I, I carved out some space for you.
0: Yes, thank you so much.
1: You're very welcome and all the best.
0: Thank you, too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. And here is just a kind of teaser of my chat with Ali Garib, which will be released shortly, along with an interview with Trita Parsi. Ali Garib is the senior news editor at The Intercept. He was previously at Mike, where he was the chief politics editor Before that, he was a contributor to The Nation and a reporting fellow with the Investigative Fund at The Nation Institute. His work has appeared in The Guardian, Brooklyn Magazine, The New Public, Foreign Policy Haaretz, and The Daily Beast, among other outlets. He lives in Brooklyn, and you can find him on Twitter, Ali underscore Garib. That is A-L-I underscore G-H-A-R-I-B.
2: So so this started with like a kind of, you know, I mean, I think really if you want to go take the broader view the starting point for all this is Trump campaigning on, and then withdrawing from the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, you know, it's really hard to overstate what an important fulcrum that was in Iran, uh, in the Iran U S relationship. I mean, it was really unprecedented and, and historic in a meaningful way, like not just in a, in a, in a, a, as a platitude. Yeah. Um, and you know, because Trump is a racist and wants to reverse and then do everything that Obama did, he wanted to reverse and get out of the Iran deal. It didn't help that you know that some of Trump's biggest donors are like uh, arch right-wing Zionists who are have dedicated their political giving to basically war with Iran, you know, like in whatever incremental Shape that has taken, whether opposing diplomacy with Iran, opposing the nuclear deal, and then asking for it to be dismantled, this absolute total BS line about wanting a better deal. Um, and so there, there was a real convergence of interest for Trump, his own, like, uh, racism and inability to get over Obama, plus the fact that some of his biggest donors and supporters are kind of these arch Zionists. We had Trump, like, really going in on the nuclear deal he took it apart and that started this sort of tit for tat process of recriminations where you know Iran sort of stepped up its uh uh you could say harassment that might even be too strong it was just like the rhetoric against the US and um and but really it was against the allies and it mostly played out as a proxy war in places like Iraq, but also there was, um, you know, uh, Iranian purportedly Iranian strike against the Saudi oil facility. There was some harassment of ships in the, in the Persian Gulf. Um, that sort of stuff really ramped up when the, when the Trump, uh, abrogated the nuclear deal. And then most recently there was this tit for tat between, uh, uh, militias in Iraq that are Shia militias that are backed by Iran and American forces, including a rocket strike against a base where an American contractor died. Um, and then that kind of started this, like, you know, then there was an American airstrikes against some of these Shia militant groups and then, you know, some, some oh, just more recriminations and, and kind of crap talking back and forth, uh, which culminated in these uh, these militia groups storming the U.S. embassy. And then Trump's response to that, which was assassinating, what uh, was arguably the second most powerful man in Iran, this guy, Solomani, Soleimani, um, who is the head of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, Hodes Force, which is like a elite unit basically running like the covert foreign policy of the Iranians throughout the region. So this would be the guy who's coordinating, you know, relationships with Hezbollah, with the uh, Shia militias in Iraq, and with uh, Bashar Assad and in Syria and some of the militias supporting him.
0: Did you hear Trump's uh, speech by any chance?
2: Yeah, I listened to it. Yeah, Um, it wasn't much. I mean, like, this is this is like the neocon policy par excellence. It's one of like of pretending you don't want war, but then actually doing things that will create a war, including like severely impoverishing Iran and trying to destroy people's lives there in some kind of vain hope that like this, this weakened and, and poverty stricken population will rise up and overthrow the Islamic Republic. Like it's just like, a neocon bonkers fantasy run amok where like we blow up Iran's proxies and there's no consequences for it. And like we, you know, we teetered so close to the edge of a full-fledged war this time that it really puts the lie to this idea that there are no consequences for these things that you do. Um, and you know, it's the consequences of backing out of the Iran deal. It's the consequences of trying to engage in this escalating war against with Iran's proxies. It's the consequences of this sanctions policy that's hurting Iranians so badly. I mean, it's just like the it's just a, a neocon fever dream spring for life in front of us, even as they deny that they had anything to do with it. Yeah. So I mean the this this the, the, the you know, I think that the roots go back to getting out of a nuclear deal and this kind of like rising recriminations. And then a couple of weeks ago there was like uh, uh, these Iranian backed Shia militias in Iraq fired these rockets at the U.S. base. Then the U.S. blew up a bunch of militia guys, and then the militia guys hit back by storming the embassy. And then the U.S. blew up lots sort of money and the leader of this Iraqi Shia militia that he was traveling in the car with. And then, uh, like, just last night was just this very, you know, after like some assholes at the State Department kept telling us that Iran wouldn't retaliate militarily at all, and Pompeo said that, you know, everybody said that nothing would happen. The Iranians t- did this kind of very measured right. strike against these, um, against basically like equipment depots inside the U.S. occupied areas of Iraqi bases. Uh, they were Iraqi bases, but they the strikes only hit the areas where the U.S. was housed. You know, Iran gave a warning to the Iraqis. They only hit the equipment depots. It seemed like they were trying to get away with not with, you know, making a strike that would be significant. It was apparently dozens of, of, uh, ballistic missiles. And Iran like took the opportunity to try and make a statement that like, Hey, we're going to hit you back. And then we want to squash this. And they actually very deftly made that statement, which uh, is kind of incredible. Cause if you do think back to the days before the Iran deal, you know, there is this constant discussion about the martyr state, and like they value suicide so much. And are the Iranians rational enough? Right. And now now we have these extremely rational Iranians. Right. We're making very measured, calculated steps to make sure that they make their point without leading to a full-fledged war. And then we have this totally irrational, maniac fascist running the United States. I mean, it's really astounding to see.
0: Yeah. Great. Thank you so Looking much.
2: Check checking out. Thank you for having me
0: on. Yeah, of course. Let's do it again.
2: All right. Bye, Katie.
0: Bye. And that was Ali Garib. Make sure you tune back, come back around, check out the Patreon-only feed, or join our Patreon, patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show, to hear the rest of my interview with Ali Garib, and to hear my interview with Trita Parsi, who is the co-founder and executive vice president of the Quincy... Institute for Responsible Statecraft and uh, he's also the founder and former president of the National Iranian American Council. Thanks again to Ali as well as to Juan Cole and here is Juan Cole's more extended biography and it's so extensive I had to save most of it for the end. Juan Cole is Richard P. Mitchell, Collegiate Professor of History at the University of Michigan. For three and a half decades, he has sought to put the relationship of the West and the Muslim world in historical context. His most recent book is Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. He's also the author of The New Arabs, How the Millennial Generation is Changing the Middle East, and many other books. He has translated works of Lebanese-American author Khalil Gibran, he has appeared widely on media, including the PBS NewsHour, ABC, World News Tonight, Nightline, The Tonight Show, Anderson Cooper 360, Chris Hayes All In, CNN, The Colbert Report, Rachel Maddow, Democracy Now!, and many others. He has written about Egypt, Iran, Iraq, the Gulf, and South Asia, and about both extremist groups and peace f- movements. He is regular columns at The Nation and Truthdig and is proprietor of the Informed Comment News and Analysis site. Cole conducts his research in Arabic, Persian, and Urdu and Turkish, you know, kind of like me, as well as several European languages. He knows both Middle Eastern and South Asian Islam, He lived in various parts of the Muslim world for more than a decade and continues to travel widely there. He has written, edited, or translated 18 books and authored over 90 articles and chapters. Wow. Also, you can find more about Juan at JuanCole.com, which is uh, informed Comment, the website that he runs, and also you can follow him on Twitter at H-R-I-Cole.